Welcome to The Bear and the Ball. I am your host, Nick Webster. And as always, so glad you could join us for more of this beautiful game. Today on the show, we have a two-time NCAA champion, a two-time NCAA National Coach of the Year. He secured eight postseason berths in his collegiate career, coached nine players who were drafted or signed homegrown deals with MLS clubs. And he has turned this program around in just a few short years. Ryan Jordan, head coach of UCLA, the 11th coach in this program's history. Welcome to the Bear and the Ball. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. My pleasure. So let's get straight into it and, and, and figure out why did you want to become a coach, Ryan? Um, probably like most people, the opportunity that I had as a player um, was so enjoyable that the natural extension of that um, after my time playing was to continue to try to be involved in the game and coaching seemed to be a natural uh, pathway. What were you like as a player? Jeez, uh, I was fortunate to play in some very good teams um, and was you know, able to contribute to team success. What, what position did you play? Uh, I played in a few different places. Uh, played in defense a bit. Uh, played as a winger some. Um, played in midfield towards the end of my collegiate career. Um, and so, you know, saw different aspects and parts of the game and had to try to learn the responsibilities and requirements of different positions and how, you know, they could function most effectively. And, you know, hopefully that you know, translated to at least my picture of what football should look like when I'm coaching players on the field now. What what kind of qualities did you bring as a player? Um, look, I was, I was fortunate to be fairly athletic, which if you're going to be a decent player in a good team, you, you've got to have some of that quotient. Um, had fairly good technical ability and, you know, would like to think that you know, at least I was trying to be a thinking player all the time and, and was trying to work on the tactical side of the game uh, so that I could find solutions in it. Um, it's one of the things I like most about coaching is trying to help players do that. And so it's probably something that, that comes from, you know, back in the days when I was playing. When did you uh, make the decision that you wanted to go from, you know, playing to a coaching career? Um, well, when I, when I graduated from college uh, and finished playing in, in, at the collegiate level, we're, it was in the mid-90s. And at that point, there weren't a lot of natural playing opportunities available in this country. MLS hadn't started. Um, there wasn't really a pro league structure per se. And I didn't live, you know, in a, in a Midwestern town that had an indoor team. And so, you know, the reality was... You know, what is the next step? How do I continue to be involved in this? I actually thought I was just going to move to the working world and, you know, potentially go to graduate school for, you know, looking, looking at something like physical therapy or somewhere there along those lines. And learned a little bit through a buddy of mine about graduate assistantships and the ability to, you know, maybe start a coaching career while working on a, you know, a postgraduate degree. And that sounded incredibly interesting and kind of took the, the first steps in that way. So you, you begin as a, uh, an assistant, or were you, were you a volunteer to begin with? Yeah, I was a graduate assistant. So ended up um, you know, in, a, in a really interesting situation at Oregon State University where I was actually the only assistant. Um, and 
was working on my master's degree, you know, kind of full time while giving everything I could to something I was really excited about, which was, you know, being part of the, the collegiate team at that institution and simultaneously getting a, an incredible tactical and coaching education from the head coach there, Jimmy Conway. Um, and it was, it was incredible for me. I enjoyed every single minute of it and, and flipping to the coaching side was just such an enjoyable experience. Yeah, Jimmy, uh, a real legend in in, in U.S. soccer. So yep. I think you're very lucky to have learned under him. I actually uh, had Jimmy uh, during one of my uh, USSF licenses. Yep. And uh, very entertaining coach, always had a great story. And, uh, yeah, like you say, he had a great 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 mind for coaching. So what, what, what were the first, you know, big takeaways you got from, you know, working under someone like Jimmy? Well, because he was such a top player. Um, I mean, you know, anybody who's, you know, played at the clubs he played at, played in an FA Cup final, um, had, had played for a long time internationally. I mean, the stories were incredible. Um, as you alluded to, but you know the the ability to have you know the educational piece every single day about you know what players' responsibilities should be, uh, systems and interactions um, tactically inside the game, and th- and then the pieces of just you know how you work with molding a team uh, because I hadn't been on that side of the fence yet, and and seeing somebody with his experience level talk about player development, uh, player integration, you know, team formation, to go with the actual football side of things. Uh, it was incredible for me. So from uh, Oregon, you went to uh, Westmont. Yep. Uh, came, came back to my alma mater and, and was an assistant coach and was doing, like, like you do at most small schools, you know, was doing about three different things. Um, but, but teaching was the primary responsibility and the coaching was a portion that kind of made the whole position fit together. And work with another legendary coach who uh, is, is really Mr. Soccer at Westmont, right? He's been there uh, 32 years of coaching there. Um, you know, he has been recently, that's for sure. Um, I was very fortunate to come in as a freshman, Dave Wolf's first year of college coaching so we came in together and um was a really great experience playing for him and then you know a few years later coming back to work with him uh was a lot of fun uh working for a guy that i respected tremendously and um you know getting the opportunity to partner him and walk alongside you know in in the project together uh from recruitment to, to team building to trying to get our product to be uh, one that could be successful on the field um, and, and being able to see, you know, a couple, you know, an era of players come through during that time and watching them grow and develop as people and, you know, progress into their post-collegiate lives. What did you notice about the, the, the change? Because obviously, you know, at Oregon, you're, you're a D1 program. You go to Westmont, it's uh, NIAI. Did you notice some immediate differences into the quality and how programs are run, or was it was it pretty uh, pretty similar? Yeah, I don't think it was hugely different. Um, you know, the, I think the scope of the recruiting is always kind of the interesting component. 
depending upon what school you're at because each school is going to have niches and there's going to be you know, different ways to go about recruiting to different places and different allures for prospective recruits to want to look to come to a particular school. And so um, going back to Westmont didn't change kind of my attitude about what you're trying to do because we're still trying to recruit the best player you could go after um, and develop relationships and, and trying to bring players and, and, and show them the opportunity at the institution that you believe in because you're there. And so there wasn't there wasn't a tremendous difference. Um, and and look, I mean, in the '90s when I played there, and I obviously I returned there, you know, at the end of the '90s, back going into 2000, you know, football was a little bit different, you know, at that point. And I was fortunate enough when I was playing at Westmont that we played UCLA, UCSB, Santa Clara, Cal Poly. I mean, we played Division One schools every year because. Good teams play good teams. And, and so as I transitioned to Division I and being at Oregon State and being in a conference that had those schools in it, there wasn't a huge change for me because I was familiar with those programs. And then coming back to Westmont, I think the gap had started maybe to occur between the different levels and, and between the different associations. Um, and, and, and that's kind of continue to occur but the reality was for me going back there the approach was the same you know and especially when you're an alum of a program you know you're you're passionate for seeing the product be really good because you want it to be as successful as it was when you were playing there did you notice a change in attitude from the players obviously you know in the 90s soccer wasn't uh, on TV like it is today, but in the 2000s, you know, I was at Fox and we got the Premier League contract and all of a sudden, you know, you can see six, seven, eight, every Premier League game on a Saturday and Sunday, all the games from Italy, all the games from Germany. And, and because I noticed at the, the programs I was coaching in from having no kids, I mean, from having kids who didn't even know what a soccer shirt was to now, you know, they're wearing the Man United's and the Liverpool's and the Bayern Munich's. And, and now there was this, this sense of, hey, coach, I actually know what the game's about. I, 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 I can see, I can see what you've been trying to tell me. Did, did you, did you notice that at all? Yeah, I think, I think for sure, you know, there was an evolution there. Um, the reality was, you know, in the in the early to mid '90s, you couldn't get games on TV. Um, and when I was in college, the reality was we got one game a week on a Thursday. And it was the Premier League game of the week that had been played four days earlier on the Sunday. But because there was no internet, you didn't even know what the result was. The game may as well have been live, which was, I mean, for us at the time, incredible. Um, and you fast forward a couple of years, the internet comes into play. Uh, and, and when I look, I tell that to my current team, they, like they can't get their brain around that. Um, but, but the reality was a few years later, you know, it had changed. MLS games were on television. You could get games from Europe. Um, players' ability to watch high-level football all the time, I think, was really impactful to their being able to understand the game at a higher level at an earlier age. And so you, you were really excited as a college coach to have players that were, you know, quote-unquote football junkies because... You know, guys who every weekend they were planning what they were doing around, you know, maybe getting up at 6.30 in the morning to watch, you know, a game from Germany or, or something from the Prem. And so um, 
Yeah, I th that was an ex that was a really exciting time as a young assistant who you know could see this evolution occurring and, and talk with the players all the time about who they were watching and liking and and some and the things that were going on in those matches. It was fantastic. Were you, were you heavily influenced by teams or coaches during that 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 you know really, really birth of soccer on TV? Well, I think. The biggest thing for me was that obviously the best teams and the best games were getting put on TV at that point, right? You weren't seeing, you know, the 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 15th and the 13th team from the Bundesliga on. It was you were getting Bayern, you were getting at the time Manchester United, and then Arsenal, and then Chelsea. Um, that, I mean, you were seeing the big clubs play all the time, and so I think you were getting to see the absolute best players in the world. Um, and some of the absolute best teams. And so you were certainly picking up the differences between those clubs. And, and, and when the Champions League was on, it was like hallelujah because you got to see th them playing each other, obviously, from different countries. And so it, no, I, I just think it was a, an amazing evolution in our country during that period of time. And it started to take off for the average person who wasn't really that much into soccer. And then all those kids who had grown up with it, suddenly they could watch it and, and there could be a real affinity for it publicly. So after your, your assistance and you're and your, and your learning the game, the opportunity presents itself to go to Cal Baptist. What was that like being a head coach for the first time at this particular level? Yeah, at the time, it was an NAI program. They were in the same conference at Westmont, and so there was probably an easy transition for me having a familiarity with the conference and, and moving to a school that I had some familiarity with. They hadn't been very successful, um, but they had a lot of things in place that that we're going to lend towards being able to recruit, you know, a, a top-level player uh, because there was an attractiveness to the campus uh, that, that had been growing and developing. Um, and for me, look, I'd been an assistant for 12 years and, and had felt like I had continued to grow, you know, year by year. And, and so when I took the program over there, I had a pretty clear picture of what I wanted, how I wanted things done. And, and so I don't think I had too many questions in my mind. It was just, okay, this is how I want to do things. And took a little bit of time to get the right group together to start really playing at a good level. But I think we got there pretty quickly. And, and then it became, I mean, it was fun the entire time, but it became really fun when you've got a team that, that has a capability on game day of, you know, putting performances together that are hard for the opponent to cope with. Did you expect to be a national champion when you went to Cal Baptist? Yeah, I mean, we, we had the ability as we started to transition to D Division Two to play, you know, in a, in a, because you, you weren't eligible to play in the NCAA tournament and, and we weren't in the NAI anymore. And so we had an opportunity to play in the other, the other cup. And so I told the guys, I said, look, you just got to win the games that they let you play in front of you. And, and if, if there's one thing to let you play in, let's go try to win it. And so it actually, it's funny because I think prior to going there, my, my perception of that, that tournament was, yeah, it's just, that's kind of a leftovers tournament. But the funny thing was when we were there, the, the division two teams that were in it were really, really good. A couple teams that were in the same transition as we were. Teams that were winning 15, 16, 17, 18 games a year. And, and usually I say, if you, if you can win 10 games in a season, you've done a good job. If you're winning 15 plus, 
you got a good team. You got a really good team. And so it was a lot of fun. And, you know, you just want your guys to be able to try to win whatever they're, they're setting out to at the beginning of the year. And, you know, thankfully for us, we were able to win our last game, which there's not a lot of teams that are able to do that. And so we had a great time with that, with that, with that era and group of players. Well, you managed to do it two years in a row, and uh, I, I know you call it the other cup. So let's kind of the the equivalent would be the Carabao Cup, okay? But it's still, you know, it's it's still a major competition, and yeah. you know, so you, you've won it the first time. In, in your mind, are you going? I'm looking at this group. We're not losing that many players. I think we can do it again. Yeah, I mean, certainly felt like we would be able to go back and try to have a go at it um, the next year. Actually, probably the teams that were there were maybe even a tad better than they were the first time we were there. And so it wasn't easy. Um, and it actually, you know, was, was probably more challenging um, to both get there and then have success once we were there because we, we didn't surprise anybody the second time around either. Um, but, but we had a great group of guys. They had enjoyed it so much the previous year. And, you know, winning does a lot for a team. Um, having success grows belief, and, and that belief lets you survive moments when things aren't going well, and it also, you know, gives an attitude of relentlessness. And so I think we, get, we had both of those things going for us, and, you know, again, fortunate to win, win the last game of the year. So with that success, isn't there a temptation to stay where you, where you are instead of going, you know what? I'm going to move out of my comfort zone and I'm going to go up north to another institution, namely the University of Pacific in Stockton. Yeah, I mean, look, I was really happy. When you, when you get a team that you think is really good, and, and we had a team that I thought capability-wise we were going to be fully into Division Two the next year, and I felt like we were going to have a team that could be, you know, a team that could compete to be in the Final Four. Um, it was that kind of group. Athletically, we were capable of competing with Division One teams. I mean, we had a really good team. And so I wasn't, you know, clamoring looking to go someplace. But the reality for me was the University of the Pacific opportunity was very, very unique. Um, they had not had a soccer program since the mid-'80s, um, so it had been close to 30 years. And because they were moving conferences, they had been in the Big West because they had kept American football for a longer period of time. And... Um, but weren't like a lot of those big UC system schools. And, and so as they moved to the West Coast Conference, um, which is the, the privates in the West at Division I, you know, they were asked to start it by the conference. And so it was a really unique opportunity to go start from complete ground zero. And, you know, I think in some ways I had done a lot of that in trying to re, you know, get the, the California Baptist University program moving in the direction of being able to win at a high level. Um, and so there were, were a lot of things that I'd, I'd kind of gone through, but there are also some things that, you, you know, you've, that very few people get to do when there hasn't been a, a program, period. And so you know, it's the one year in the last 27 for me that I did not have a team to coach in the fall which was a unique and strange feeling. I could see results. I could watch games. But I wasn't going out to training every day, and I wasn't spending time with the players because I didn't have any. And my entire job was to go recruit an entire roster, uh, which was an interesting proposition. Um, a lot of fun to do. Uh, but it was, uh, wow. I, I don't think you'd want to do it too often. <laughs> Well, I mean, what, what are the challenges of, of starting a program with that 
completely blank slate because there's no tradition for you to sell. Yeah. Uh, there's no uh, there's no last season to look upon. There's no uh, going to your recruits saying, hey, you're going to get a chance to play with X, Y, and Z because none of these things exist. How, do you, how did you go about selling the program? I mean, were you selling yourself? Were you selling the school? Yeah, I mean, the school in California, the school historically has a very great, has a very good reputation. Um, and, and it's the oldest school in California. And so there, there's some, there's some real history there um, that I needed to learn about and be able to try to tap into with regards to being part of something bigger because we didn't have a soccer program that guys could come into. I think for the, for the players that we recruited, it was an opportunity to play immediately and have an impact. Um, and it was a vision of this is where we're trying to go. We're trying to come in you know, with a first-year team, and by the time you're done, be able to compete in the NCAA tournament. And so you know, I think that appealed to, to a group of guys that, that I brought in. Um, and, you know, thankfully some of the ideas and, and sort of the trajectory that I had painted to them and the opportunity we were able to get at in that, in the four year career of the freshmen that, uh, that came into play for us that first year. In, in your time at, uh, you know, University of Pacific, what, what were your, what were your big takeaways from that experience? That having a big picture matters, um, you know, and, and what I mean by that is if you've got standards for your team, if you've got cultural ideas that you want, um, if you've got player development at the heart of everything you're trying to do, then you have an opportunity to move as, I think, as rapidly as possible towards your end goal. Because in the first two years, it would have been completely unrealistic for me to believe, oh, we're going to compete at the highest level in Division One soccer. Uh, just not feasible. But if you look at, hey, this is the culture we want to have and establish, which is going to give us the best opportunity for success. This is what we want for our players relationally, experientially. This is what we want for their developmental trajectory to be as fast as it possibly can so that in two years' time when we start to have a team that can maybe compete at a high level that we will have done everything we could for those guys to help them be the best players they can be in two years' time. Was I worried about results? Yeah. Like any coach, you want your team to win in that process. But I also, it was easy to have a reality based on the environment and the success that we had walked into with that. And so in some ways, it made it very clear that we could focus on bigger picture ideas. And so... You know, we focused on those things, and we were fortunate enough that over the course of a couple of years, we developed players in, in a manner that helped them to be ready to compete at the top end of Division One. And we got a group of guys together that relationally were bought into what we were trying to do and were willing to compete to try to, try to grow as players individually and, and as a team. And so by the time we got to the third year, we put ourselves in a situation where we had a group of players that had started a lot of games in their first two years. And so they're, they're juniors and they've started 30 plus games and the teams were competing against the juniors and those teams probably hadn't. Um, and so we benefited in some ways by having that developmental pathway where young players who were talented could play a lot 
and not be under a pressure to win all the time and really focus on, okay, how good can our performance be as an individual and a group and that really be the sole focus. And then when we got to a place where we were competitive at a high level, we could start talking a little bit about more about what does it take in these final details to get the result. So in 2019, the brooms come knocking. Obviously, this is a storied uh, university. There's no doubt about it. And been uh, pretty successful on the men's soccer side of things, winning a couple of yeah. national championships. How did that come about? Well, look, growing up in Southern California, I mean, this, this isn't a bold statement I'm about to make. UCLA has been historically the best men's soccer program in the West. And so, you know, as a youth player, as a collegiate player, that was where your eyes went to when you start talking about, you know, who's the best team out there. And so I think for a Southern California kid especially, you know, you grow up, and in, and in my household, UCLA was, you know, the football team and the basketball team as well. And so for me, it was always, you know, what a place. Um, and, and like I said, as a, as a player collegiately, we played there every year. And I was familiar with the players that had been in the program. I was familiar with the players who were in the program when I was playing against them. And then obviously being in the conference at Oregon State, I continued to be familiar with it. And so... You know, it, it's a pretty special place. Um, it doesn't take you long just walking around campus to get that feel and, and figure that out. Um, and on the soccer side, you know, the capability based on, you know, the name recognition puts you in a situation where you have an opportunity to build a top team year in and year out. And so when, when a place like that has an open position, if you've been able to have success at other places, um, which is what had happened at California Baptist and, you know, what happened the last three years at Pacific. If you're in the NCAA tournament every year, you know, you're, you're in a little bit of a unique group. And so, you know, felt like there was a potential that they'd at least entertain interviewing me. And, you know, from that point at that, at that stage, it's just, do your ideas align with, with those of the administration and what they want for their, you know, their men's soccer program. And thankfully they did. So let's now get into players and, and, and what you see. And obviously, you know, the four pillars we sometimes look at are the technical, tactical, physical, and mental components of players. What are the qualities you're looking for, firstly, on the technical side? Yeah, I think for any good college player, and especially as you go up in levels, in kind of the layers in that to being a top collegiate player, technically you're looking for guys who they just their comfort level with the ball is incredible and they you can tell the repetition that they've taken in development is has been really really good and yeah I tell I tell youth players all the time the reality is you have con complete control of that it's how much time are you willing to dedicate to spending with yourself the ball and really a wall it's what is the comfort in reception? How good are you at, at the type of contact that you're making in, in, in passing the ball? And yeah, there's other stuff you can do in dribbling and, and, and other aspects of the game. But receiving and passing of the ball, I mean, the classiest players, they're really good at that. And even the greatest goal scorers, they're really good at that as well. And so, you know, I think that's, that's one real aspect. And, and that's 
for somebody who's been coaching for a while, I mean, those things, you pick those out really, really quickly. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more about the wall. I've got a 15-year-old son who's, who's not bad, and uh, I'm, I'm constantly, hey, you want to go down the park and kick the ball around and play against the wall? And you go, oh, I don't know, Dad. And I said, listen, the, the great thing about the wall, you'll always get it back. 100% so, true. Yeah. How, how, well you, how well you get it back is how well you play the wall. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it really is uh, the greatest teacher. And I, I, I couldn't uh, really strongly recommend every kid get friendly with a wall because it is the perfect teammate. Um, so that's the technical side of things. Tactically, what are you looking at? Because obviously, um, you know, playing uh, and, and not, not to, to, to bash uh, youth soccer uh, in, in this country, but you know, one of the things I've noticed from being here for 35 years, and when I when I when I go on my coaching travels, is that the, the American players are typically as good, if not better, than the European players up to 14, 15 years of age, and then all of a sudden the gap just it, it becomes incredible, and and that gap is purely based on the tactical side of the game. Yeah, I mean, look, I think tactically. As, as I'm looking at players, you're looking to see somebody's ideas. You know, can they solve problems in the game? Can they read spaces? Can they understand numbers? Can they look at overloads and be able to process how do we use the ball against the opponent? And, and look, we talk about that side of it first because that's the joy of football. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to take positions. When you take over positions where the team hasn't been very good or – there was no team, oftentimes you got a lot of leeway because nobody has hugely high expectations immediately. And so, you know, the joy of football for me is having the ball. And, and so if you can have an implementation of big picture thinking about how your team is going to solve problems and find solutions against opponents, then first of all, your players should enjoy the game a lot because they're focusing on the part that everybody wants to focus on. And so as I'm looking at players and as most you know, top coaches are looking at players. You're trying to find opportunities to see players who can find the solution and, and have a little bit of that genius with regards to understanding how stuff works. And as a result, things work out for them in the game. Now, you're also trying to figure out, you know, who's got tactical acumen and, and has flexibility in what they're doing, um, you know, defensively, understands the right things to do in anticipation. Well, that shows tactical thinking. And so it, it comes in all aspects of the game, dead balls, attacking, defending, transitions. But you want to see players who understand the aspects of the game that are going to allow for them to have success and use their technical qualities. You talk about the geniuses, and uh, I've, I've been lucky enough to work with a, with a few. And uh, from... My experience is the geniuses are the players that like to go forward. They like to make something happen out of nothing. Working them into the framework of the other side of the ball. How challenging do you find that? Well, I'll talk about the first part of it first. One of the things that kills me is when you've got teams that won't play forward. I think this idea of possession has been so misconstrued because possession is solely a function of trying to get to goal. But you'll see teams and players go sideways and backwards completely unnecessarily. And so 
when you find players who have an idea for finding the passing that helps the team go forward, it doesn't it doesn't seem to me as is it's that complicated. But the reality is I almost feel like coaches do players a disservice because they're not emphasizing the risk reward quotient and the the necessity to find the opportunities to go exploit space in an attacking quality. And so I think that's the first side of it. Now, how do you find the really top ones, you know, their ability to work on the other side of the ball? If I'm honest, the best players, they're competitors. If they're actually competitors, they want to win. If they actually want to win, they want to compete on the defending side as well. And so the idea of a luxury attacking player, to me... You know, that's a guy who's got good technique and maybe some soccer sense, but at the end of it, he's not really a competitor. And as a result, is he really somebody that somebody wants to have in their team? And I don't care how big you are. You can, you know, you can weigh 120 pounds soaking wet, but if your work rate on both sides of the ball is incredible, you can be incredibly effective. As long as you have a coach who will buy into the fact that, you know, and this is the way world football works, it's not a size factor, it's a quality factor. Well, you bring up a great point about size because the next you know, pillar that we often talk about as coaches is physicality. And the, the knock on the college game for many years has been that it is, it's physical over technical. How do you, how do you blend uh, that physicality into your style of football? I mean, look, as, as we're looking at players, the, the, the obvious, most obvious thing that jumps out at you is like, what are the physical traits of somebody? Because everybody can pick that out. Um, and so certainly if you're going to have a top team, you're, you're having to look for having top athletes because athleticism will solve problems and, you know, getting places a half second sooner provides time and space or the lack thereof for the opponent. And so you want the top athletic quotient. Now there's a difference between top athleticism and somebody's physical body type or physical strength component because those are, we're talking about a couple different things. You can find players that, that do not have height and stature that can be incredible footballers and be incredibly quick and get places quickly, and they can do the physical things but not be tall in stature. I think the challenge, especially at the top end of Division One, is that you've, you may have a way of playing, and your way of playing may be ball centric and you want the ball and you want to dominate it but you also have to be able to deal with an opponent's tactics which may be how many times can they stick the ball in your box and as a result you have to be able to compete and deal with the heading aspects of the game and some of the other functions because the game can be played in different ways and so I think there's lots of parts to it. And I think, I think Division I soccer, well, college soccer, specifically Division I soccer, I think it gets a bad rap because the standard is incredibly high and the athleticism quotient in it is incredibly high. I think the challenge is that if you've got a team of really great athletes, you can make the game really hard on the opponent. And if the opponent isn't very good with the ball... The game doesn't end up looking aesthetically, overly aesthetically pleasing. And so for a team, you know, that I would want to build, you want to be able to dominate possession. You're going to have to deal with teams that are trying to athletically be able to do more than the technical capacity of your own team to be able to solve the problems. And the tactical ideas about how to find the time and space to do those things. And so 
you know, I, look, I, college soccer games are awesome. And anybody who said, you know, they're ta- if they're talking bad about college soccer, but they're not going and watching it, they should go see a couple games um, because the entertainment value is incredible. Um, even if the stylistic portion of it may not be like watching, you know, two teams from Spain that are trying to dictate and dominate possession. Um, it's incredible because in every single game, you've got to find out what, what are the two teams trying to do and how are they going to compete against each other to make it happen. Back to the part of your question, the athleticism part makes a big difference. But I think you can have guys who come in all shapes and sizes who, as long as their requisite athletic quotient can play in the game that they're playing in, and they can play in the manner that the coach that is coaching them wants them to, I think it can happen in a lot of different ways. But like I said, you still have to be able to deal with how the opponent wants to play. The last pillar, and and for for many years, perhaps one of the most underrated, and now I think we've we've become a lot more enlightened as coaches, and we're realizing that perhaps this is the most important pillar, the mental side of the game. What are you looking for when you first find a player and you think to yourself, yeah, he can play, I I I like his technical ability, tactically he looks good, physically he can compete. How do you discover if they're mentally right for you and your program? Like, like I said, the physical part you can see pretty quickly. Um, the technical part you can figure out. It doesn't take that long because you, you watch one game, you figure out how, what's the, how well do they pass the ball. Do they solve problems? Do they get out of trouble? Can they, can they retain it for the team? Can they hit the ball that needs to get hit? On the tactical side, that's also like those two go hand in hand. How, you know, how do they find the solution? I think that, you know the psychological piece. It's got lots of different components to it. You, you've got. I already mentioned talking about guys who compete. Um, you watch games. You find out who gives everything. Who runs hard all the time for the team on both sides of the ball and in transition moments, both directions. Who's willing to to give the physicality piece? Who's mentally tough? Their team goes behind and they're a leader in their team, not a problem in their team. Um, How do they react to instances in the game? How do they deal with things that occur in the game? Substitutions. um, Moments where the game isn't going well for them. When players in their own team make mistakes. You can pick up lots of different pieces of the psychological part in all those different avenues and accesses. And so I think the question is, is will you sit there and look and watch and try to, try to evaluate a player and figure out, okay, how many of these qualities do they have on a positive side? And if that's the case, probably they contribute to a team being a winning organism. Or are they on the opposite side of the thing and maybe not a helpful portion towards helping their team get success? And so it's a tough portion of it, um, you know, because it takes time to try to figure that out. But, you know, this is where talking to somebody's coach. What's he like in training? Oh, he's our most competitive player. He'll run through a brick wall for you. Um, he'll always be positive with his teammates. Those types of things, they start to frame that's a guy that, that somebody would want in their team versus the antithesis of those statements. Well, diving into that a little bit further then. So we've got a player in practice and 
you know, he's, he's the kind of player that goes through the motions, practice isn't for him, but game time levels up here. How do you, how do you as a coach, deal with that? Because as, as you just described, we, we want players that, you know, are giving their all, uh, you know, pretty much most of the time. But, you know, in my, in my experience uh, as a coach, I've, I've often seen players who are, let's call them game players. They're not practice players. How do you deal with that? Uh, I mean, it's an interesting question because it, you can take it in a couple different directions. If, if they're so talented that, that they don't have to train hard, then maybe they should be playing in an older age group. If we're talking about, if we're talking about youth football... Maybe they should be playing in an older age group where they have to be challenged in that way all the time. If they're physically more adept and so they don't feel like in training they have to, they have to compete that way. I mean, that would be my, my advocacy for somebody who's ahead. I would say because, because we're doing them a disservice if they don't have to train hard because at some point they're going to hit a standard of football where they're going to have to if they're going to continue to progress. And if they don't and they don't lay that foundation at an early age then my estimation would be that their progression over the course of time, their slope of improvement will decline versus somebody who maybe it doesn't come for as easy. And we see this all the time, especially on the male side of things, right? Young boys, skinny, not as physically powerful, taking longer to come through puberty, but they've got football in them. We have to find ways to let them keep competing to find the avenue where they get to come into some of the things that are going to translate and help them have success from a physical standpoint. So I don't know if I've actually answered your question, but and your question really was how do we deal with and manage those players. I think as a coach, your job is to meet every single player, if they're in your team, and find a way to get the most out of them every with every interaction. Because let's be honest, in this country... You know, if a kid's only training in most teams three days a week and then playing a game on the weekend, if we're really trying to do development, that's not enough. And, and so the three points of contact in training during the week and the expectation and standard that is held for them in the game on the weekend, we've got to try to meet them, be able to put an environment in front of them that stimulates them be able to motivate them in a manner through both the training and the way that we interact with them to try to help a player who maybe is a quote-unquote gamer, meaning he's better than other players, helping him continue to develop. And maybe it's being in a, in a more advanced environment. And unfortunately, I think most coaches would rather hang on to that player for their selfish wanting their own team to win as opposed to being willing to help that player move to a different environment so that they could progress at their fastest rate for their own personal development and success in the game. Um, but for the guys who, who are like mo- the bulk of players, it's how do we help them continue on a trajectory of enjoyment in the game, which will want them to continue to train, and they'll probably be willing to go do a couple of other days with the wall and the ball or get five of their buddies to go play three against three on a day when you're not practicing with your team. Can we provide that sort of encouragement and joy and stimulus for players? I think if we do those things, we continue the development pathway to to continue to encourage players um, so that we don't lose guys who maybe could have been top just because they were physically underdeveloped earlier and maybe didn't mature as well 
you know, as early as somebody else. Um, but for sure, we shouldn't lose the guy who's physically mature early, who the game is easy for because he's faster. We've got to try to help that guy still continue to grow and develop at the fastest rate possible and not get stymied because it's too easy for him at the time. What are your hopes and expectations for the Bruins season uh, coming up in, I guess, in July? I mean, I'm sure you're in spring right now. And especially now that you've got a, a national champion on the other side of the, uh, the dressing room, the women who, uh, who had a quite magnificent journey. So let's talk about that quickly. Yeah, look, uh, watching them have the success they had this year was incredible. Uh, it was so much fun for, for our team to... Uh, you know, to watch them and, and our relationships, our players' relationships with their players, to, to, to feel, I mean, we're not part of it, but we are. Um, and that's, it's a fun part about being at UCLA because every team on campus is trying to do the same thing. And I've been at schools where I don't think everybody has the same belief that we're trying to win a national championship. But at UCLA, it, it, it's one of the wonderful things about it. Seeing the women do it this year was incredible. The way they went about went about it and the way they won it in the final, um, gosh, it was exciting. Um, and so, no, look, I, I think for our guys, certainly, you know, they can look at that and go, they just did it. We should be trying to, we should be doing the exact same thing. As we look at our team, you know, in the NCAA tournament the last couple of years, so we've kind of gotten back to resuming normal service um, for what the expectation at UCLA should be. Um, second round, then round of 16. And so, you know, my hope is that we just continue on the upward trajectory. Um, obviously, the goal's always got to be, can you be in the Final Four? And, and if you can get into the Final Four, then you put yourself in a situation where you have a chance on one weekend to you know, to hoist a trophy on the back end of it. And, you know, certainly our women did a wonderful job with that. They progressed themselves through the tournament really, really well. And then, you know, they positioned themselves to be able to have a couple results at the end to, to be able to celebrate it. And so fun to be able to have that on campus. Uh, fun to be able to have that be the 120th national championship at UCLA, which is a massive number um, and, and pretty awesome to be part of. Um, but yeah, we're excited about our group and, and our team going forward. Yeah, that was a big thrill for me, actually. Uh, Goffin Bioko, uh, he and I worked together at UCSB the, yep. the prior year, and I was, I was kicking him out, going, Listen, you've got you to leave, you've got to leave, you've got you to expand your horizons. And of course, he rolls up at UCLA and wins a national championship his first time out. Um, before I let you go, how can, uh, you know, Parents, players, coaches, you know, they're, they're always asking me, oh, UCLA is such an amazing place. How can I get there? How can I put myself in front of the coaches? How can they do it? Yeah, I, I mean, look, places like UCLA, our job is to make sure that we, you know, obviously we do a good job recruiting and we see, who, we see who's out there and we're at events and, you know, we're, pub we're publicly engaged. I think that's a really important piece of it. Certainly, if people are interested in UCLA, you know, their ability to come to campus and, you know, come to an ID camp, see, see what the information is from one coaching staff. Um, or if it's an ID camp that we're hosting where it has, you know, multiple college coaches there, I, th these experiences are great because, you know, I know, look, I coached club soccer for a lot of years. And it's good for players to hear information from other coaches because they get a reinforcement of the information they may be getting from their coach, but also hear it in a slightly different way. And so I think developmentally, there's always a positive. And so, look, we're, we're always excited about having 
you know, prospective student athletes on campus, the opportunity to work with groups and and hopefully have light bulbs go on even brighter uh, in their heads about the possibility um, and hopefully the stimulation in, in, in how they think about football. All of these things should be you know, outcomes as we engage and interact with, with youth players and whether it's us going out and working at other camps or somebody coming to our place and being in a camp that we're running, you know, these are the actual touch points where we have interaction. Um, but it's fun for us to go watch games and be at tournaments and watch kids compete and, um, you know, see who's out there and see the standard grow and develop and, and watch teams that have history grow and flourish. It's, it's a lot of fun. Ryan Jordan, the head coach of the UCLA men's soccer program. Thanks for joining the Bear and the Bull and the best of luck this season. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nick Webster. And of course, Cal South is on Twitter at Cal South, Instagram and Facebook. This has been the Bear and the Bull. 